The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Thank you. Um, so, hi, congratulations, almost, on the book. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have so much I'd like to ask you. Uh, so maybe I'll just start, like, given that you're busy anyway and you're serving in so many different ways and it's so much work to write a book, what inspired you to write this book? Mm. I started writing it uh, in 2020, actually, when we had that incredibly challenging series of events unfold, starting with the pandemic. Um, and then here in the U.S., George Floyd's murder. And then within a few months after that, I don't know if you recall, Sharon, we had this season of really horrific wildfires out here in California. I actually had to evacuate from someplace in the Sierras. Um, and one of the ways I, as many of us who, who teach meditation, felt like I could contribute was to write about how to face challenges and uh, root ourselves in our inner strengths. And so it was out of that time that I started reflecting more and writing more about um, not just meditation, but this whole range of different capacities and qualities we can develop through contemplative practice. And um, there's a part of my heart that feels sad <laughs> It's kind of an understatement that the book is even more relevant today than when I started writing it. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of us have a sense that there's something deeply wrong uh, in our world today, whether it's the ecological crisis, um, the political situation, uh, the wars unfolding around the world inflation. Um, there's so much uncertainty about the future as well as just tremendous grief and pain in the present. And so um, given the intensity of the struggles that so many of us are going through, uh, it seems like a time where we really need resources, inner resources uh, to handle the challenges. And, you know, one of the things that I feel like I've learned from you from our work together um, and your teaching is really understanding not just meditation, but the whole path um, as a kind of skill building practice. And so I, I see the book and the, its offering um, of contemplative practice as a, a kind of medicine for the challenges that we're facing, how fragmented so many people feel, how overwhelmed our nervous systems are, how broken our hearts feel many times. And so um, that's kind of what, what the book grew out of. That's beautiful. Um, you know, when I, I wrote this book called Faith many moons ago, and uh, somebody I had consulted as a writing coach in one of the many times I was stuck said, um, amongst other great things she said to me, this was Susan Griffin, she said, um, people might think you write a book like that, because you're a complete expert on it and you want to impart your expertise, but more mm -hmm. likely you write a book on a topic like that because you're exploring the topic and the writing is part of the exploration. So I'm just curious what your experience was in terms of it deepening your understanding in the very writing of it. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly um, what the experience was for me. And I, I can, I can say like in two ways, I think there are two really important things that I learned or, you know, I'm still learning, you know, through, through the writing process in the book. Um, so one is, as, as you know, my first book, um, focuses a lot on communication. And for me, that was kind of this progression from, from what we learn on the cushion and our meditation practice into relationships and, being a parent, having having a young child now, I've really been grappling with the question of how does our practice relate to the larger issues of our world and specifically to social change? 
um, and wanting to bridge that gap, not just from the personal to the interpersonal, but to the social. So one of the core themes that I explore in the book is not just how do we develop inner resources, but how do those express themselves and how does our inner cultivation or can and how can our inner inner cultivation play a role in working for change in the world? So this is one key thing that I was grappling with as I was writing the book and really asking myself and looking at from many different angles with all of the different qualities I explore in the book. Um, The other thing that the book really pushed me to look deeply into was just clarifying my own understanding and experience of each of these aspects of the path and you know, what does courage really mean to me and how have I experienced it and what is its utility in our lives and in our world? Or what is what is the value of renunciation, um, particularly when it comes to issues like the ecological crisis where individual actions aren't going to tip the scales? And does renunciation have value not just on um, a spiritual and moral level? What's its What's its relationship to working for change? So needing to look more carefully at the qualities and and understand them in myself and differentiate them from a lot of the kind of pop ideas or um, sort of pat notions we can have about something like kindness or compassion and getting really clear and specific about them. It's great. Well, the topic for today's session is spiritual resources for resilience, which is certainly something we are probably all thinking about. And um, you've mentioned the challenges, some of the challenges that we're living through today, the ecological crisis, war, inflation. And I'm wondering if you could say more about the title of your book, which I find very intriguing. Your heart was made for this. Mm. Um it, it sort of a, it reminds me of something somebody uh, <clears throat> told me sort of in uh, kind of terrible beginnings of the time of the pandemic and uh, everything disrupted and changed and so many people I knew, you know, dying in, in New York and, and uh, you know, terrible things. And, and somebody said that his statement of encouragement to himself was you were made for this you were born for this mm-hmm. so then he offered that to me you know as a mm-hmm. as a way of bringing up courage and and strength and I mean, there's something genuine about it not just if you say this you'll feel better <laughs> so what what did you mean and what was your whole process of yeah do you really think we are made for this that we are able to navigate these kind of times yeah I think that that's it's a legitimate question, and I what I like about about the question and the title is that it is kind of provocative in that sense of really, you know. Um, and for me, there's a way in which yes, there's a there's a yes there, and there's a no. Um, I think on one level, in a very real sense, um, our heart in the sense of our biology and our nervous systems were not designed for the world we live in today. And a lot of evolutionary biologists talk about this. It's um, something that's a recognized phenomenon that, you know, we evolved in small communities um, with, you know, no more than 50 to 150 connections and expect to have certain things in our lives, like enough downtime and uh, nourishment from social connection, a shared sense of meaning and purpose and place in the world. So many of the things that modernity has stripped us of. Um, We live in a much more fast-paced and complicated world than I think our nervous systems are really built to contend with let alone the kind of influence of technology and the fragmentation of our attention um, or the the exposure to tragic news from all over the world at any hour of the day. 
So on that level, I think our nervous systems are contending with an environment that is inherently at odds with how we're designed. So what does it mean that our hearts were made for this then? Um, I think it, for me, it means two things. One, it's very consonant with the story that you just told that, you know, why do we practice? Why do we have spiritual cultivation? It's not just so that we can feel good when everything's going our way. It's precisely to be able to rise to the challenge when things are really hard. And in that sense, on a spiritual level, um, on a moral level, on an ethical level, I think we, our hearts were made for this, you know. Um, this is, those of us who were born into this time, these are the greatest tasks we will face to be in right relationship with everything that's unfolding and find our place to contribute in a meaningful way. That's one meaning for me of what does it mean to say our hearts were made for this. The other meaning, um, which is kind of a play on words with the nervous system interpretation, is that I believe, you know, what the Buddha discovered, that our hearts were made to wake up, that we were made to flourish and to realize our full potential. And one of the things that's been so beautiful about being a parent and being around a newborn is to see how beautiful the human spirit is when it comes into this world, um, how loving, how generous, how joyful, how enthusiastic, how curious, how playful, and to recognize that so much of the violence and disconnection that happens in our world is learned through experience. So one of the analogies I like to use um, is when we're born, um, we have the capacity to learn any language, right? Our neurology is primed to learn any sounds, any grammar. Um, and in the same way, I feel like our hearts are primed to express all of these beautiful qualities to, you know, embody compassion, forgiveness, empathy, integrity, and the question is, you know, do we cultivate them? Do we do we live into our potential? And so it's the kind of invitation and exploration that I engage with in the book is is how do how do we make that journey? Was that 150 social connections over the course of a lifetime? I think it's it's a specific figure. It's something called Dunbar's number. That's a certain theory about um, human evolution that says that the sort of size of the band or the tribe, including like you know external connections, um, is somewhere between fifty and one hundred and fifty. And that something about our neurology is designed to have like the, we kind of max out there evolutionarily. Yeah. What would you say to someone who got on average about 150 emails an hour? <laughs> right. Balance, rest. Yeah. I mean, so much of, so much of the book in terms of how I, um, try to make, so the book goes through all of these different qualities we can develop that are rooted in the path, but broader than just Buddhist practice. And their practices in each chapter for reflection, for meditation, for action. And one of the sections in each chapter is if you have difficulties. <laughs> and I feel like so many of the difficulties we have in our world, in our lives today, in terms of developing spiritually, ethically, morally, um, finding balance have to do with the external circumstances of our, of our lives, whether it's, um, just sort of the, sheer pace of modernity um, or external circumstances due to structural violence or oppression. And so how do we contend with those? How do we, um, how do we compensate for those conditions is one of the things that um, I try to make real in the book so that the skills can be really practiced. So the subtitle of the book is interesting as well. It's, Contemplative practices to meet a world in crisis with courage, integrity, and love. I'm wondering um, if that was a, a conversation with your publisher to include love, or maybe not with that publisher. 
Uh, how do you define contemplative practice? And can you give us some examples of practices that are actually included in the book? Sure, yeah. Um, the conversation with the publishers, whose Shambhala was more the Your Heart Was Made for this part of the title, um, I, I pushed for the parts of the subtitle, I think, um, less around the love and more um, a world in crisis, uh, because it feels important. It felt really important to me to um, acknowledge a kind of sobering truth of the, our times, and not just it's not just a feel good thing. Uh, I think it's appropriate to be uncomfortable and uh, uneasy today, given everything we're living through. Um, and yeah, those three in particular. I honed in on them, I think, because it, they feel essential in some way in that order. It's like we need courage to actually turn towards the truth. We need integrity to feel a sense of inner strength to face the truth. And then, and then love is the piece that softens it, right? That, that nourishes us with connection and that takes us beyond ourselves. Um, so... I define contemplative practice in the book as um, anything that cultivates awareness, reflection, and that connects us with a sense of meaning, purpose, or perspective. And one of my aims with the book, you know, in the last somewhere between 10 to 20 years, if you, if, you know, depending on how you cut it, um, mindfulness has become so well known and meditation along with it. I mean, you've been doing it longer than I've been alive. Um, but even in, even in my lifetime, like when I started in the late 90s, you know, meditation was not in the public conversation in the way it is today. Um, so it's, I think it's a great benefit to our world that mindfulness and meditation are common terms now. Um, and yet it feels like there's a real limitation there in not recognizing the breadth of the path and the kind of variety and creativity that's available. So one of the analogies I've been using as I, as I talk about it is, it's like thinking about the difference between running and exercise. I don't like to run. <laughs> so if I said, well, I don't like to run, so I'm not gonna exercise, that wouldn't make any sense because there's so many ways to exercise. In the same way, I feel like not everyone connects with meditation. But there's so many other ways to cultivate awareness and reflection and to connect with meaning and to move beyond ourselves. So that's what I'm really exploring um, with the book. And art can be contemplative practice, ritual, movement, storytelling, relationships. So um, reflection is one of the practices that I rely a lot on in the book. And we did kind of a little reflection in the guided meditation uh, at the beginning of the session. Um, it's a sense of taking a theme and allowing oneself to explore it in a receptive way. So it's it's using thought, image, memory um, to shape the mind and to shape our inner life. Um, another, well, like one of the reflections at the very beginning of the book, to come back to your book on faith, is a reflection on aspiration and faith and what, you know, so kind of listening deeply for what's most important for to us um, what do we know or trust in our hearts and how do we want to orient in our life um, another contemplative practice that i use in the book and for different qualities is working with image so image can be a very powerful way to access different parts of our consciousness so for example in the chapter on patience one of the tools I offer for cultivating patience is recollecting an image that represents patience. Like here in California, we have the old growth redwoods, these massive, massive trees, um, or a mountain image of a great mountain, or in the commentaries, they use the image of a, of a lake, right? The shore of a great lake, um, encompassing the uh, energy of anger or hatred. Um, so recollecting an image and reflecting on it as a way of developing a connection with a quality would be another example of a form of contemplative practice. 
And all of them rest upon um, the skill of training our attention and, and this kind of underlying insight of the Buddha and I think all forms of contemplative practice that how we use our attention every day shapes our inner life and that we're always practicing something. So developing the skills of attention so that we can choose more consciously and steer inwardly around what are we building? What kind of world are we building, not just externally, but internally? And that's really where I see the potential for, for cultivating spiritual resources for resilience is that every day, if we, if we develop the capacity to know where our attention is going and to redirect it skillfully, not to avoid the things that are difficult or painful, but to make conscious choices about when we're engaging with them and when we're nourishing ourselves, we can develop a more rich, robust, and stable inner life so that we have more to offer. All right. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I used to say that my uh, favorite word, as it was uh, for many years, was poignancy. And mm. talking about the heart of compassion, that, that flavor of poignancy there, you know, and these days they say my favorite word is emergent mm. or emerging because uh, meditation is attention training. It's one of the many, many ways, as you point out, we can do attention training. And uh, when people think about training in loving kindness or training in um compassion or something like that it sounds so odd and it feels so cold but really it's all saying that we know we can train attention and all of these other things are like emergent properties of paying attention differently mm. you know so you don't sit out and say i'm going to be more loving today in some forceful coerced you know weird way but you know just from experience that if you look directly at people instead of through them or you listen to somebody instead of holding your mind some rigid impression of them that what you're laying the conditions for what may then emerge which is some sense of connection and so um you have an interesting list of emergent qualities you have 26 chapters in this book each on a different quality and many of them, of course, I recognize from uh, Buddhist teaching, like mindfulness, energy, concentration, kindness, compassion, and so on. But some are, uh, they're not disconnected, I think, from anything we might experience in training attention to be different, but they're not in sort of the classical list, like rest or play. And how did you choose the qualities? Mm. So I um, first I want to I want to comment on uh, that beautiful teaching you just offered on emergent and um, what it made me think of was um, an interview I heard with Rebecca Solnit recently. Actually, I think it was the interview um, that James and you did on Tricycle, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, where she was talking about the root of the word emergency being connected to emergent and that possibility. Um, that opens up when there is an emergency. So just connecting that sense of the emergence um, of the beauty of the heart through how we pay attention with the emergence of our capacities to contribute and to make different choices as we face different crises. So in, in structuring the book, so I looked at all of the kind of core Buddhist lists. And for those who are kind of Buddhist geeks on the call here, um, that Sati Center is running, you know, these, the, the Bodhipakya, I think it's called that the core lists that, you know, there are 37 different qualities if you add them all up and some of them are repeated. Um, so I looked at the five powers, the seven factors of awakening, the 10 paramis, the four, Brahmaviharas, the five jhana factors. Um, and one of the things that emerged, both in looking at the lists, but also just through my own practice over the years, um, is an understanding of a certain kind of underlying template 
of energy in the list, that there seems to be this kind of wave-like pattern, if you look at many of the lists, of these kind of foundational qualities that create a certain stability and initiate energy. And then it reaches some kind of a peak. And then there's this there's this integration moving towards freedom or release. And so I looked at that that pattern and pulled out the qualities that um, seem to be the most relevant for the world we're living in and the crises we're facing and thought, how can I how can I structure these in a way that take people through that cycle multiple times in the book? So I chose 26 somewhat randomly because if you do two weeks for every chapter, you have a whole year. So it becomes like a year-long training for the heart. Um, and so in addition to the classical qualities you mentioned and that come out of the Buddhist lists, um, I was also just thinking about, as you said, like what are the other things that we do develop in meditation um, or that are necessary, whether they're named explicitly or not in the teachings. And, you know, rest is there, of course, in things like tranquility or calm, um, but it's not language that way. Uh, and then I thought about, you know, some of the, the medicines we need in our lives today, like rest, like play, um, and the roles that those play in working for social change and the need to nourish our hearts. So another theme that I explore a lot in the book with the different qualities is this theme of balance, which is woven throughout the Buddha's teachings. Um, but, you know, how do we balance energy with rest? How do we balance uh, resolve with patience? Um, and so there's a kind of back and forth movement throughout the book both, again, in terms of our individual practice and cultivation, but then also in how that moves out into the world uh, and the choices we make, whether it's through service, social activism, or other ways of contributing, and the need to really um, bring lightness and joy and humor and play into our work so that we don't burn out, so that we are nourished. Do you think that you you ordered them in a particular way, or is it just what happened? Um, some of some of it is very specifically chosen, particularly the first part where I start with attention and then go through the five spiritual faculties. I feel like it lays down, lays out a really strong foundation. Um, the the order of the qualities within each part is very specific in terms of that pattern, that wave like pattern. But I move chapters around and in in up until like, you know, the final draft. And even now looking at the book, I'm like, oh, it would have been interesting to put this one here versus that one. So in some sense, after the first part, my hope is that um, people won't feel bound to the order and actually will feel free to like think, okay, well, what is it that I need right now? You know, and and jump ahead to the chapter on rest, for example, um, or if, there's a particularly challenging ethical situation happening, unfolding at work or in one's life. It's like, let's go look at the chapter on integrity and think more deeply about what that means to me. And so that it can really be a companion and a resource to meet people where they're at. Yeah. I want to uh, read a passage from your book. Uh, you write, uh, popular mindfulness suggests that the sole source of our suffering is individual and internal, ignoring the vast influence of structural factors such as racism, sexism, and poverty on our well-being and our ability to access our inner resources. So I, my first question to you is, um, you phrased it as popular mindfulness as compared to kind of the classical meanings of mindfulness in the text. So uh, do you think the classical meaning is broader than that or does it seem to rely heavily on that? And then I'm curious about what role you see for mindfulness specifically in contemplative practice more broadly in addressing these kind of structural issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, thanks. 
Well, I think it's clear that like the Buddha wasn't trying to restructure ancient Indian society. <laughs> it wasn't his, that wasn't his mission. Um, and so I think he was pinpointing, you know, the internal suffering, the internal experience of suffering on an individual level. But I, I don't think he's necessarily limiting mindfulness to um, to just that internal investigation. Of course, he talks about applying mindfulness internally and externally, both internally and externally. So I think there is a broader sense in the classical teachings of how we use mindfulness that then gets reduced even further in popular secular mindfulness. Um, but as far as the causes of suffering, you know, it's a, it's a deep question, I think, in how the Buddha defines dukkha. And it, it does, it does seem to me that he is really looking at the individual emotional, psychological, spiritual experience of, um, struggle and being burdened, however we want to define, define dukkha. Um, and, and that the external circumstances maybe, um, get defined more in the context of, of pain as, as unpleasant experience, right? Whether it's physical pain, um, or the, um, pain of war, the pain of poverty, um, and so forth. And yet, I think what's so remarkable about the practice and the teaching is that I think it does provide um, an invaluable tool for working for change on a structural level. Um, so some of the things I talk about in the book, um, one is that, and this is, I think, one of the more commonly understood applications of our practice when it comes to oppression and structural factors, is it, it provides a lens to investigate more deeply our condition, right? So I talk in the book um, about how practice has been a support for me in understanding and become a, becoming aware of, you know, patriarchal conditioning that I've internalized or acted out, um, internalized anti-Semitism in myself or unconscious racism, things like this. Um, so that's not only the mindfulness practice, but all of the other qualities we develop in training our attention, like courage and curiosity, um, kindness towards ourselves, the capacity to let go, I think supports us to look more honestly at these things and begin to transform them. Mm -hmm. um, I really love the the phrase that you're fond of that you share so often on social media of meditation doesn't replace action. So of course, we need more than that inward looking to actually address and engage in structural violence and oppression um, or the climate crisis, all of these issues we're facing. And yet I think that our contemplative practice has a key role to play in that process. Um, I feel like a lot of the times spiritual practice or even um, the kind of wellness sector and social change get presented as an either or that is sort of mutually exclusive thing, but I really see them as supporting each other. Um, our practice helps us to not only understand the dynamics of oppression and transform them, but to, to come from a different place in how we're working for change and align our means with the end that we want to see so that we're not unintentionally sort of recreating patterns of domination or shaming or ex excluding um, in our work for change. And then the service and social work and activism offer a vehicle to express our values or our love um, and a, another way of creating leverage to work for change on a structural level, broader than just our individual actions. Well, you know, I think in many ways the Buddha did uh, foster social change. Um, just 
first of all, when we change our vision of life and when mm -hmm. we develop insight like into interconnection, which is mm -hmm. really a function of of seeing more clearly and you know, so we're back to paying attention differently. Um many things move from that. So one's view, mm -hmm. one's worldview is is really important. But the Buddha specifically, you know, when I think about uh ironically, you know, in the evolution of time, like when the Buddha first seemed to me proposed intention as intention behind an action as the seed of the moral valence. He was challenging the entire caste system, mm. you know, which in, in the philosophies of that time would often say, um, you know, what was right and appropriate or dharmic moral for a Brahmin male was completely forbidden to a uh, uh, soldier's caste, whatever that was called, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to study scripture, to mediate with the divine. It was also forbidden to a Brahmin female. And so morality was held by one's birth, in effect. And uh, the Buddha was saying, well, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter what your gender or your caste or your social status or your skin color. An act born of hatred will have certain kinds of consequences. An act born of love as its intention of certain kind of consequences and there was mm -hmm. a huge upheaval in you know and very threatening in many ways and and there were other things like that but i i think of that because um you know it is such a part of the classical teaching and it's still very important and these days you know in uh innumerable diversity and inclusion workshops one hears you know intention is not the point because look at impact mm -hmm. and and i think that makes a lot of sense too it fits even in the teachings because it's not just the intention there's the skillfulness of the execution you know you can have an intention that's also full of delusion um about skill and speech or so on back to communication yeah. um but it's just interesting you know that things kind of shift in the course of time and and just having clarity from the Buddhist point of view, clarity about certain things causes a revolution mm. all in and of itself. Yeah. I, I, I love that you're bringing all of that in and kind of making the, making, making a distinction, I think, between like one, the transformative power of the practice and the teachings on a social level. Um, and two, how, so some of the Buddha's teachings, including, I mean, things that you didn't mention that we could go into in terms of how he structured the monastic sangha, which is kind of democratic and egalitarian, um, did did challenge the social structures. And the distinction between that um, and kind of the explicit aim of the teachings in terms of individual liberation, right? So there are those two levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I want to congratulate you on including the word crisis in your subtitle. I know it's often not easy and that publishers, every publisher, you know, gets anxious about uh, people will be turned off and it'll find it depressing or they'll fear it will be depressing so they won't get the book. So uh, it's not always easy uh, to do that, but you did that, um, which is really good. And, one thing I do notice about the book, and I think this is something we spoke about in the process of your writing it, is that there are no chapters on difficult emotions like anger, grief, sorrow, or burnout. So why not, speaking as a Buddhist? Yeah. Um, I'm pausing because I'm like, should I make a joke about because I wanted to avoid those and I don't like experiencing them. That's a good joke though, because it's yeah, because it's true. We don't like feeling like those things. Too. Yeah, they're hard. Yeah, they are. They are, and yet, as you say, they're so essential for not just the times we're facing, but for just being human and you know, yeah. living living a full life includes all of that. Um, yeah, I remember the. Yeah, the fuller question is, you know, what do you see the place? Or can you describe the place of these painful yeah. experiences in developing resilience? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the place of them, it's, you know, it's so often those really challenging times that call forth our deepest strengths, right? It's, you know, when we're grieving the most deeply that we discover how how strongly we love, right? Or um, when we are the most afraid that we discover our capacity for courage, um, so the reason I didn't put any chapters on them is because I wanted to take more of a trauma-informed approach to the development and really focus on cultivating the, the strongest and most holistic ground internally from which to engage with and process those difficult experiences. So they're woven throughout the book, but within the context of what are the antidotes that we need to cultivate in order to metabolize them. So I talk about those experiences within this broader context of cultivating a really strong, robust, and balanced heart that can handle and integrate the difficult experiences. Um, The other thing, I think, the other reason I chose not to have individual chapters on them um, was there's a way in which kind of the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts in the, in the cultivation of attention and all the different qualities we develop. So take something like grieving, you know, all of these different qualities come to play like courage, compassion, and patience to mention a few to really allow our hearts to go through that process. Um, Or with something like jealousy, the way generosity and gratitude can dissolve it Um, or fear and anger uh, when we have access to wisdom and kindness and equanimity those those qualities create a container that can transmute the energies of fear and anger into clarity or into energy and power so um, they're woven through and really held in the context of our goodness and our strength. Yeah. Thank you so much. I have a few more questions, but I think it's time to start to include why don't others. We do, why don't we do one more? Do one pick, more. Pick from me, see. you mean? Yeah, from you, and then we can open things up. Sure, whatever you want. Um. Okay. <laughs> You've recently become a new parent, speaking about play and I don't know about rest, but uh, I'm curious how that's affected your practice and if it's changed anything in the book in any way. Well, I have much less time for formal practice. Um, so it has... Um, yeah, forced me to really live the practice and to make the most of small moments uh, of rest, of awareness, of connection. And um, while I miss having uh, more downtime and free time for formal meditation, I also really love the challenge of making every moment practice in a very real way. Um, it's been incredibly humbling. I think it's been really good for my uh, personality <laughs> to see, um, yeah, all the places I lose patience um, or get grumpy or irritable when I haven't had enough sleep or haven't had enough time to, you know, meditate or walk in the woods or something. Uh, so a lot of uh, good dose of humility and um, just tremendous wonder and appreciation um, for the the miracle of getting born um, and for the immense amount of work parents <laughs> everywhere do and have done. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of the books, I was, uh, I wrote the first draft while my wife was pregnant. And then I edited the second draft, which was a very rigorous and challenging edit after our son was born, um, you know, during the winter and we weren't sleeping. It was a very challenging time. Um, 
but I feel like his presence in our lives taught me um, a tremendous amount and um, really just embodied so many of the qualities in powerful ways um, that it provided a different kind of taste and insight into some of these, um, the innate, the innate nature of some of these qualities, as I was referring to um, before. And then, and maybe the last thing is just, um, yeah, just this, one of the things that was the most startling, particularly in those early months of this, the utter vulnerability and helplessness that we arrive here with and how it calls forth so much goodness and generosity. And even today, you know, he's over a year old and just being out in public with him, it's like his purity just calls forth the goodness in others. It's so beautiful to witness. Um, and it's this remarkable affirmation of the beauty and goodness of, of our nature as human beings. It's lovely. Okay, so I am not totally certain of how we're going to be receiving questions. I do have somebody wrote me one, uh, which I will ask as a direct message in the chat, but I don't know what what's our uh, uh, path here. Yeah, so why don't we, um, we can open up the chat. And yeah, we want to take the rest of our time together, everyone, to hear, hear from you. And, um, you know, how can we be of support? Um, with the themes we've been exploring, do you have questions for either of us or questions about the book or anything we've talked about? So you could drop a question in the chat um, and uh, you could also raise your hand, um, but uh, you'll stay off off camera just to, just to honor privacy. So Sharon and I'll stay spotlighted. Do you want to start with the question you got, Sharon? Uh, sure. Um... Somebody was asking uh, first about uh, for you to speak toward the similarities in the name of your book and that of, is it Kara? Kaira? Kaira. Kaira Duolingo, yeah. Kaira Duolingo's book, which is called We Were Made for These Times. And then something about the similarity in content. So I want to speak a little bit to that latter point because, uh, I, you know, I've written 13 books at this point and uh there's only so much i understand you know or uh, and you know i i hate to think i made any of this up anyway you know i'm referring to either the buddhist teaching or other sources or uh, artists or therapists or somebody you know and and so uh i don't think there are that many topics actually uh you either approach things from one angle or another but it's the same kind of life and and we're all just trying to, you know, devote ourselves to one corner of it so that we can we can explore it. Okay, so what about that title? Yeah, so Kyra and I are friends and colleagues, um, and well aware of the similarity of uh, of titles and also the terrain we're exploring in the books. Um, so we talked about it actually before uh, before I settled on the title with the publisher. Um, the actual, I think that the actual title, the, the first part Shambhala recommended, um, and yeah, Kyra and I talked about it and Kyra was very gracious in offering her blessing and basically said, you know, I didn't come up with this title either. She took it from, um, a, uh, another person from a letter from, from one activist, uh, to, from a mentor to an activist. So I, I think that as Sharon's pointing to that some of the similarities are more about the relevance of our practice and the times that we're living in, you know, and that this is, these are the, these are the themes that um, are emerging in our times because it's what's needed. Yeah. And Kyra's book is wonderful and they do, they do overlap, but we also cover distinct, distinct things in both books. Their folks, or their um, did you do an audio version? I did, 
Yes, and it's um, it's available. It'll be released the same time as the book on November 21st. And you're the one reading it? You're yeah, reading it? yeah, yeah. It was really fun to read, actually. It was a way of you know, revisiting the whole book. It had been a few, you know, a few months since I'd looked at any of the text. That was, that was enjoyable. Uh, Well, I got another question for you. (laughs) I believe it's for you. Please talk more about dealing with jealousy. The topic is hardly spoken about by teachers. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Hmm. It's interesting. There is a lot of stuff in the teachings about comparison, right? Right. And so often that comparison is leading not to sympathetic joy, but to the opposite, which would be jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love that that point, Sharon. A few different things come to mind for me, I'll share, and I wonder for you, Sharon, what what comes to mind. So I mean, one is just the the stepping back and the acknowledgement of the suffering, right? Like I've heard you say, Sharon, like this is a state of suffering. Just that recognition that we're suffering is so important. Um, understanding it as a contraction, there's a certain kind of craving and clinging in the heart, um, but not to demonize it, to see that contraction as a certain longing for something um, that we care about. So one way of working with jealousy, I think, is to um, is to try to connect with the aspect of our heart that either wants to feel fulfilled, wants to feel seen, recognized, beautiful, and to try to disentangle the the reaching, the comparing, and the the pain of that contraction with what it is that we want that could actually be meaningful or fulfilling. To disentangle those some. That's one aspect of it for me. Another is to um, investigate and bring attention to the to the arising of clinging and contraction and the suffering inherent in that. So the heart learns how to let go. But of course, that takes resources. So I think jealousy needs to be um, counterbalanced and healed uh, with dignity, self worth, connection. Uh, all of these things that nourish us, gratitude is a huge, I think, antidote to jealousy, recognizing what we already appreciate and have as a way of rem- the, reminding the heart of its fullness and um, remembering how to let go and experience that innate uh, sense of well-being without reaching for something. So those are a few of the things that come to my mind. Anything you wanted, would want to add to that, Sharon? Yeah, uh, but I'm not reading the question. Um, okay. Well, I think gratitude is a very interesting quality in the context um, in which you you written this book and, and you're speaking because uh, in terms of social issues and needing to confront maybe oppressive systems or or being treated unfairly, people often say, well, gratitude is like the stupidest quality because that's like being grateful for crumbs, you know, instead of standing up and, and saying I deserve better. And so when I was doing research for one of my books and I, you know, I talked to scientists and, and one of them said, no, it's actually quite different than that. According to the research that if you practice gratitude and it is a practice, you know, people do it in different ways, but they might say, the end of the day, I'm going to write down three things I'm grateful for from the day, or maybe you have a gratitude buddy and you text each other at the end of the day, like, Hey, this thing happened, you know? Um, If you practice gratitude, I've heard, you know, research shows, then you get, it's just what you're talking about. You get filled with a kind of energy. You don't feel depleted. You don't feel so uh, impoverished internally. You don't feel so exhausted. And you have energy to try to make a difference, really. Yeah. And the other thing uh, somebody said to me was people who practice gratitude really want to pay it forward. Mm. They want to see other people get a break. They want to see them get some relief. They want to see them get better treatment. And then they, um, you know, they have more energy to, to try yeah. to do that. So 
Another question. Do you, uh, I love the idea of living these qualities you spoke of more consciously, reevaluating and being present to our values. Will you be offering any teachings on these qualities? So you can, what are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I have a bunch of events around the book um, happening. I think that the next one will be um, on the release date of the book, November 21st. So I'm just doing an open Q&A for an hour, just me. It's on my website. Um, and then I'll be continuing to do events. So my website's the best place to see um, where that's happening. And the idea is that um, to also do some kind of online training in conjunction with the book at some point, perhaps not next year, but after that. Uh, you talk about how humans evolved to be in communities of 50 to 150 and how some are overwhelmed with many more connections. But what about those who are lonely and isolated and alone? I know many for whom the loneliness and isolation that started in 2020 has continued. Or people who are aging and lonely or disabled and lonely. Does your book talk about this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate the question and just... um yeah, I think it's one of the um, challenges of our times is that even though we have we are surrounded by, you know, more and more virtual connections and and people, uh, people are lonelier than ever. Um, I talk about it in different ways. One whole part of the book, part three, is um, devoted to exploring relationship and friendship and its role in uh, in these qualities. But I think there's there's several ways we can work with it. Um, one is internally and there's a difference between the experience of loneliness and solitude, right? Solitude is a sense of deep connection with oneself and the world, whereas loneliness is that absence of connection and the pain of that. And so how can we use internal resources to shift the experience and to develop more of that experience of richness inside? Um, this is one avenue that, that shows up with different qualities in the book that I think is important because we're not in control of what happens externally and we can't always um, make the new connections we want to. Um, the other the other avenue is through different the cultivation of different practices and qualities to find moments of connection to see that um, while it takes time to build friendships and requires not only effort and energy and good luck and circumstances um, we can find those moments of nourishment and connection in other ways. Um, with a brief interaction, um, really taking in the natural world. I remember um, one time visiting with one of my first teachers who was also one of Sharon's first teachers, though by many decades apart, <laughs> uh, Menindraji, and um, asking him if he was ever lonely because he lived such a different kind of lifestyle. And he said, no, I'm never alone because the birds are my friends and the trees are my friends and the sky and the clouds are my friends. And so I think we can begin to heal some of the loneliness if we know how to open our heart and allow ourselves to be nourished by the goodness that is around us in life, including the goodness in others who we just have passing connections with. That's beautiful. I have one uh well, there are so many good questions. They're really coming in, but we don't have that much more time. How to develop patience with people, especially during conflicts, war, as well as personal? Mm. Well, as the Buddha said, patience is the supreme virtue, right? Patience paves the road to freedom. I think first we need to understand what patience is. And I talk about this in, in the chapter on patience and that patience is not gritting our teeth or, you know, just hunkering down and bearing something that often is a kind of aversion or resistance. But patience is actually a certain kind of softening or surrendering inside. And that there's a really important distinction between that softening and surrendering and being complicit with harm. And so patience is, a, I think, a very rich 
a nuanced quality that has both this aspect of a kind of widening and a softening inside that we can cultivate through meditation on a moment-to-moment level, as well as a certain strength that's about enduring. And we see that more on the external level of our lives, that um, we're able to find stamina, energy, resilience to stay engaged with something in spite of discomfort, activation, intense disagreement. And so really starting to understand the nature of patience and then to be able to experience and cultivate its different facets, it becomes a resource for those kind of really difficult situations. Thanks for the great question. Well, uh, I think someone has to tell me if we need to stop because I I think we do. I think we we do. Yeah, these are great questions, everyone. I want to um, encourage you, if you're free, to join me in a couple of weeks when the book actually comes out. Um, I'll be doing, uh, as I said, a one-hour uh, Q&A um, just, just open. So uh, that is on um, It's on my website, and I'll, I'll just put the link here in the chat. But let's turn it over to you, Rob, to, to wrap us up and, and close for the evening. <laughs> 